Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley, or at least I'm trying to be. I'm Bo Sanders for the time being. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Randy and I have been uh, talking, so we are really enjoying the, the feedback and engagement that we're getting, and we thought that we would uh, talk about something a little bit controversial this morning, something we're not a- afraid of doing. But uh, people had asked if we had any thoughts or opinions on the recent controversy of the Christianity Today editor um, putting out an editorial and criticizing President Trump and the fallout from that. And since you and I uh, have probably some opinions about the current state of evangelicalism, it seems like maybe that would be a fun topic for you and I to cover today. I think we might have a few opinions about it since we just finished our book, Decolonizing Evangelicalism, on the 1159 Conversation. Yes, yes. We thought it would be a good <laughs> opportunity to, uh, to wade into that conversation. You and I have some concerns about what is going on, not just in the news, but in the evangelical community as a whole. We're going to talk about that this morning. And just before we get started, we wanted to say, also remind everybody that we're having a book discussion about Shalom and the Community of Creation, speaking of books, on Tuesday, the 14th of January at 5.30 Pacific Time. You can, you'll be able to find that both on Facebook and if you uh, are a Patreon supporter, we'll send you a Zoom link. And uh, if you want to email us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com, we can get you a link to either the Zoom chat or the Facebook uh, And uh, I was able to work out some of the tech problems that we experienced initially uh, doing that. And so it's going to be fun to have you, Randy, uh, on the other end of the line so that people can talk. I mean, it's a rare opportunity to talk to uh, the author of a book. People have read Shalom, the Community of Creation, and uh, and the chance to talk with you about it, I think, is going to be really uh, exciting for people. I've been hearing... Uh, lots of requests of people to say that, you know, they read the book and they have uh, questions and opinions and follow-ups. And so for them to actually have access to you, I think it's going to be a really good time. I'm excited about that. So that's Tuesday the 14th. Yeah, I'm excited about that too. I just, I just got a card last week, um, a little uh, hand-painted uh, card from an 18-year-old uh, young woman in British Columbia, who uh, was just saying how her life has been changed by reading the book, and she goes on and talks about her worldview and the influences that shaped it, and now her life is turned upside down, and and wow. uh, uh, even though her mother is a Christian, they've gotten to arguments about this. <laughs> it's just a really, really encouraging. I, I get, you know, maybe once every month or two, I get something about, uh, usually about that book, um, sometimes wow. the other one, but and um, it's encouraging to me to know that actually I'm still in conversation with people out there, which is, you know, exactly the point of, of writing it, right? Is to yeah. get people to begin to think a different way, perhaps. Yeah. 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 So how are things going uh, out in the middle part of the state there? So we're trying our best, actually, to um, move from uh, uh, what people refer to as Eastern Oregon, but it's actually Central Oregon, and yeah. it's really North Central Oregon, to be specific, if you think about where Maupin lies. But um, uh, we're it, it's what we call the dry side, anyway. So we got yeah. the, in Oregon, we have dry side and the wet side. Uh, <laughs> and then we have, on the other side of the Cascades, farther west, you have the wettest side. 
So the the uh, the valley that uh, we're all living in over there, and when we were in Newburgh and where you live, is, is the Willamette Valley. For those who don't know, and um, we're actually um, trying to get moved back over into the Willamette. We've um, we've we've had a uh, sort of several properties out here that look good, but our board never could come to a, uh, a sort of a agreement, and we we trust them uh, really, you know. Uh, with our lives because they're, they're all good friends who love us. And, and so um, they're feeling pretty good about some of the things that we're looking at over on the uh, um, kind of in the foothills of the Willamette on the uh, um, a little bit uh, east of Portland and a little bit south of Portland. Um, and so, uh, and our kids, of course, who are in the Portland area, um, most of them anyway, um, are really, really happy about that. So we're, yeah, we're, we're getting excited. Um, we found one property in particular. We put an offer on it, but we'll see what happens. Um, prices are very high, very high. Oh, yeah. Property values are just impossibly. Um, it's amazing. You'll see a piece of property, and you might have some number in your mind mm-hmm. to think about a ballpark that it could be in, and then you find out what it's the asking price is, and you just think, Wow. Yeah. And yeah. of course, you don't pay the asking price. But um, yeah. the uh, the thing is for us, too, it's not just as simple as like finding right. a house or then you got finding a potential farm. And then you have the idea of, you know, where can we also run our Indigenous Learning Center or Center for Indigenous Justice out of um, for Earth Justice? Um, and so we have to have something that will work for all of those things. So it gets a little tricky. Yeah. Yes. You have very specific uh, items on your uh, want list and need list. And the land matters a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, what the feel of the land, um, what's going on, what's happened there. And and so, um, yeah, all of that makes us a very uh, picky shopper, particular yeah. shopper. Yeah. Oh, well, I hope that the, I hope that this property you're looking at works out. I hope something works out. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, about a month ago in the most recent issue of this magazine, Christianity Today, which was founded by Billy Graham. and They uh, say and, that, but I always thought Carl Henry founded it in 1949 oh, or 7. Um, you know, the, the, the founding of it really, and, and this is germane, it, is it okay to interrupt you right now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's germane to the conversation. We need to talk about uh, origins. I'm very a highly contextualized person, right? Yeah. So, so it started in the late '40s, um, perhaps with Carl Henry and Billy Graham, or maybe Billy Graham helped to start it, and Carl Henry was the first editor, something like that. But um, it started as a result of the problems between what we call the modernist and fundamentalist movements. Okay. And that happened. That was the great divide. This is the great divide in America. You know, we had uh, the great divide between the um, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. We had these great divides uh, of the Protestant Reformation. And we had one in America um, they referred to as the modernist um, fundamentalist uh, split. And that happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And that's where we get the word Christian fundamentalism from. And as a sort of in a way to piece this back all together, um, to coin a phrase, uh, 
these folks said, we've got to be more balanced. We've got to create a magazine that both uh, deals with the social dilemmas in our day and be a witness for Jesus that way. And we also have to be concerned about um, the evangelism and mission and all of those kinds of things um, and truth to scripture and all that sort of stuff. So, so it was started in a sense to fill that gap. Now, they didn't quite do it, just so, so our audiences know the context. They, they sort of, uh, I would say, aired to a more sort of a fundamentalist bit and called themselves evangelicals. Later, uh, we had something called the Chicago Declaration in, I think, 1969, was it, 68? Um, where a bunch of those uh, evangelicals actually went a little farther and these are people uh, probably well-known to people in Christian circles like uh, uh, Tony Campolo and uh, John Perkins and Ron Sider and, you know, Jim Wallace and, and others who sort of became um, more progressive uh, in the way that they did social outreach, right? So, um, so it, it left Christianity Today a little bit farther right, but it was trying to, to, to fulfill a purpose that was really important. And the reason I bring that up is that the whole issue that's going on in evangelicalism today is just a repeat of what happened in the eighteen in uh, the nineteenth century into the twentieth century? It's it's again they're still fighting the fundamentalist uh, modernist uh, issue. The split. Huh. Interesting. So it's always been a fractured group. I mean, it's always had lots of uh, subdivisions inside of it that were very uh, contentious and suspicious of each other. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Trump was completely, completely off the wall when he tried to uh, picture Christianity Today as a leftist, a left-leaning, you know, magazine. Every anybody within that context, both on yeah. either side of that debate, knows that's absolutely not true. <laughs> I know <laughs> that uh, it was funny. Um, yeah, the fallout of that, and uh, just how. Uh, ridiculous some of the things that were said were but um you know you as a historian and a contextual thinker um and somebody who has existed inside that world for a number of decades i was raised uh within it and uh and try and keep my eye on what's going on within evangelicalism for two reasons one is that there's so many people that i love who are still in it and then secondly because it really has become quite a political animal it has become politically very influential and so um it shows up in the darndest places like um after the, the 2016 election, the exit polls and the numbers of white evangelicals who voted for Trump was just, I mean, it was as high, estimated as high as 81% by yeah. some polls. And there's, there was so much disorientation around that and true shock because, you know, this is not a man who has upheld any sort of moral standard that um, that evangelicals would say they subscribe to. Neither personally or socially. Yes. <laughs> so In other that, words, he offends both groups if you really uh, hold your guns to um, uh, and, and stick with the idea that, uh, that the argument of both sides and yeah. the morality of social conscience and the morality of a personal conscience, he is 
fully offended both. And yes. yet they still stick with him. Yes. And this is why it's sort of, captures people in their imagination and and they just are trying to wrap their brain around what could be going on here what could they be thinking that that this guy would would attract not only this kind of loyalty but no matter what happens it doesn't seem to to shake their commitment to his presidency and so it has become an object of real fascination of people saying, like, what is going on in the evangelical community that this is a thing? Yeah, and so it's mostly white evangelicals who are asking that question. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, uh, you know, it goes back to the old adage that uh, a fish doesn't realize it's in water until you take it out of the water. Yeah. And um, so uh, I would say a large part of what was going on is that because white evangelicalism is bathed and birthed in America in white supremacy um, that that they can't figure out what's going on because they're a part of it. Yes, and so um, it's a uh, uh, just a matter of saying how do I see outside of my own sphere in order to figure out what's going on? But people aren't willing to do that because they're unwilling uh, to be uncomfortable. And, um, and of course, that is not what Jesus taught. If you're interested in following Jesus, comfort has nothing to do with it. So, too, where it gets, for me, really fascinating is that younger evangelicals or people who were raised evangelicals but may not uh, subscribe to that anymore, um, this has caused, this, this support of Trump has caused a generational divide within Evangelicalism, where, uh, you know, families, children and grandchildren are losing so much respect for the their parents or grandparents who are Trump supporters. And, I mean, it shows up even in the editorial. So, the, so for those who haven't been following this closely, in the December issue of Christianity Today, the editorial by the retiring editor, Mark Galley, um, posted this and it drew all sorts of, I mean, just from all over the board and all sorts of different responses. Um, some people unsubscribed from the magazine. They just thought that that shouldn't be what they were covering or that they were way off. Um, way more people subscribed to it and thought, Oh, if we're finally going to have this conversation that they'll, they'll support it. Um, several hundred evangelical leaders signed a support letter for uh, Trump in the wake of this, others distance themselves. I mean, it has caused uh, internally, so it may not have made it to everybody's um, to everybody's desk, but internally, it has caused all sorts of fractions within churches, within families, within uh, different political communities. It is really uh, a lightning rod. This yeah. this and, editorial was, yeah, and. And I am so happy about it. And, and I'm even happier that Christianity a few days later actually stood by their, uh, maybe stood by their guns is not the phrase I want to use. Um, <laughs> uh, but they, uh, they actually uh, stuck to the, the truth that they were saying and yeah. they doubled down 
and said, yeah. no, we won't apologize for it. Well, that Now, that really took guts. Yeah, so I will link to this article. It's by Timothy Dalrymple, and uh, it was entitled The Flag in the Whirlwind, an update from CT's president. And it has some amazing uh, uh, things in there uh, that I thought would be good for us to talk about. Um, I did not highlight them, and I should have, but um, – he, he goes on to explain. So this is a paragraph that caught my attention, and, and I wanted to get your feedback on it. He said, out of a love for Jesus and his church, not for political partisanship or intellectual elitism, this is why we feel compelled to say that the allegiance of American evangelicalism with this presidency has wrought enormous damage to the Christian witness. It has alienated many of our children and grandchildren. It has harmed African-American, Hispanic-American, and Asian-American brothers and sisters. It has undercut the efforts of countless missionaries who labor far in the fields for the Lord. And while the Trump administration may be well regarded in some countries and in many more, the perception of wholesale evangelical support for the administration has made a toxic reputation of the bride of Christ. So obviously that's very religious um, uh, inside baseball language, Mm -hmm. but you can hear the heart there. And so this isn't the original, this is what you're saying, the defense of the original a couple days later. Right. And, and I, yeah, go ahead. No, and that's just amazing. Uh, when you, when you hear the concern of the leadership of Christianity today, that it's affecting evangelical families generationally and globally. I mean, it's, this is a really big problem. Yeah. Evangelicalism, you know, has made a mark, uh, no doubt. Um, I'm feeling like, you know, people like you and I and others, um, you know, sort of what people would consider, I guess, left leaning or progressive or whatever. Yeah. Um, In magazines like uh, Jim Wallace, Sojourners and and others have been calling Trump out, of course, on these kinds of things, you know, um, since day one and before. but what's so impactful about this is this is conservative Christianity calling out conservative Christianity. And that is, that is the remarkable thing about this. And, and so, of course, the propaganda machine that Trump runs, the first thing they want to do is try to typify them as left-leaning, which is absolutely ridiculous. You know? I don't think they've ever been accused of that before. No, I think this might be the first time. So uh, there's two things specifically. Specifically, that I thought you and I could talk about. Um, so you talk about DNA or, or origins and, and how, uh, why they're important and how things are impacted there. One of the reasons that I like to keep track of things like that is because over time things drift. They change, they morph, they adapt, they evolve. And so I, I really do like to keep track of how things change. And I think that evangelicalism is one of those sort of moving targets, that it's never been an actual institution uh, like a Catholic church or, you know, something like that. Um, it's always been a loose sort of grouping or affiliation of, of uh, different loyalties and, and priorities. And so it's always been sort of tough to define. People have tried from time to time, but there's never been an agreed upon definition of evangelicalism um, across the whole spectrum. So I think that's fascinating is that 
from the beginning, it's been sort of a loosely organized group of affiliations. Right. And, and so, yeah. yeah. In fact, if, if we could just, uh, you know, dawdle on the history just a bit here, uh, evangelicalism, uh, some would argue, starts with folks like Charles Finney in the mid-1800s. Um, and at that point, uh, you had, you know, Finney, uh, Theodore Weld, who was a great abolitionist. Finney also was an abolitionist. You had uh, 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 the Grimke sisters. Um, you had uh, one of which was married to this Theodore Weld. You had uh, Jonathan Blanchard, who started Wheaton, which is sort of the bastion of uh, sort of on the same level as maybe Christianity Today. What I would say is conservatism, but sort of trying to be in the middle of the road conservatism. Um, you, you had even evangelicals before this time, before the modernist fundamentalist split, were people who were involved in both uh, the idea of personal morality and social morality, and it was very well balanced. In fact, um, we can talk about, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, the influence that they had, if you're interested in going back to this, the influence that evangelicals had in actually creating a more perfect union, how the influence they had in uh, securing women's rights and women's suffrage, the uh, idea that they helped to um, uh, create the uh, sort of a, a level playing field for discussions for abolition, um, the idea that uh, things that were called at that time insane asylums and, and work laws and everything else, all of these things come about with help from the stream of evangelicalism. And then all of a sudden, we get into the uh, early 1900s, and all of the things are forbidden by fundamentalist Christians. Yeah. You know, and I was raised in this, and so I have seen these different streams. I remember as a kid and even as a teenager, de live debates, you know, within our congregations about how much to be involved in the affairs of this world. And so some people would try and, and uh, evoke, um, you know, days gone by where historically, uh, for us it was Methodist, had been involved in the, the abolition of slavery and in different uh, social issues and uh, had stood up for marginalized communities in labor effects for mining camps and all, you know, all sorts of industrialized workers and they, and uh, the, the uh, Prohibition against alcohol because of how it was affecting women and, and, and their kids. It was breaking up families. So many things they would try and, and evoke from uh, the past. And then others, you know, would, would take this really, uh, this tough line that, that we shouldn't get involved in the affairs of life because we're, we're supposed to be about like the kingdom of God and, and we don't want to get down in the, in the mud and wrestle with the pigs, you know, stuff like that I would hear. Yeah. And so, and, and, and that, that, by the way, there's not a new argument. No. The argument between the pietists and the Puritans. Yeah. I've regularly heard the analogy of any change we make to this current social order is like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> I would, I heard that uh, pretty consistently that anything we do here it's fine if we want to make people more comfortable, but because of the end times theology that was in place, it was sort of assumed that things were going down the tubes and then Jesus was going to come back. And that was the only way the world would be fixed. Yeah, and, and that entered under the guise of fundamentalism. Actually, yep. people like um, Dwight Moody and, and others uh, kind of ushered that in with what we call Darbyism, 
It was a premillennial theology that said, you know, the world doesn't matter. And, and of course, if you um, believe in the dualism that was created uh, with the fundamentalists, then uh, it makes sense, right? The whole world's going to hell. Why be involved in it? You know, just grab some, you know, some centers on the way up, you know, sort of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, that is um, not at all. Uh, if you if you care about what Jesus said, it's not not at all like what Jesus said, um, right. and, and so this whole fundamentalism, uh, we're comfortable talking about fundamentalist Islam, right? But we're not yeah. comfortable talking about fundamentalist Christianity because, yeah. in many ways, it's more insidious, yeah, um, and uh, and it's it's more pervasive, it's ubiquitous throughout society. It's had an wow. influence in America ever since its beginnings. Wow. And it comes from, right, straight out of uh, Greek dualism, right? Yeah. The dark and light, us and them, right and wrong, good and evil. Yes. So here, but here's the second thing. So so the first thing is how things migrate and change. The second thing is when something new is introduced or when something uh, doesn't just drift, but it crosses over into something, becomes something else. I can remember in the 80s um, when the rise of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, and so they called themselves the religious right or the moral majority. Um, And I remember when politics came into my church. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was a teenager, and I remember thinking, I, I don't think we're supposed to be involved in politics. And all of a sudden it was red, white, and blue, and there were voter registration guides at the back of the church. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure this should be in here. Don't we have like a separation of church and state? So, you know, as a young person, I made a mental note. And then every time I have watched that line of reasoning become more influential in the church, over the last 30 years, I have watched people who are um, – you know, previously, I would say non, not political, not politically involved, become rabidly political. Mm-hmm. And, and it's been fascinating for me, especially as now sort of an outsider who's keeping track of this trend, um, to just watch how people who previously were not involved, noncommittal um, in the way they practice their faith, become so deeply uh, committed to it that um, they will actually still, and I'm talking about over Christmas break, they will still stick up and defend this president. Yeah. And I am amazed at what I'm watching. And that doesn't feel like just a subtle drift or change or evolution, but in, in the last 30 years for this to become a radically different animal. Yeah. And it's it's really sad because uh, you see these people who are teaching their children um, in in their own Christian faith to try and love Jesus and yet to do the very things that Jesus taught against. So as so as outsiders, what I hear is people say that they and the reason this is such a fascinating topic is that they cannot figure out how evangelicals who allegedly uphold such a high standard of morality, how they could possibly support this president, this guy. 
And so there must be something else going on. This is, as an outsider, this is what I hear the most. People come to me and try and process and say, do you have any insight here about what's going on? Because I can't figure it out. It seems so hypocritical. The hypocrisy seems so thick that there must be a part of the story I don't know. Right. And it's always been hypocritical. (laughs) I mean, this is nothing new to the Native American community, a bunch of the Latino and Asian community, especially to the African-American community. This is nothing new. White Christianity has always, always, since its inception here, we're talking about slavery and everything else, um, and it, it has always been hypocritical because it never stood up for the equality of humanity. It never stood up for those who were being the most marginalized and the most disenfranchised. It never stood up for that. It stood up for its own self-righteousness, and now it's being called out. And if white folks can't figure out what's going on, they need to look through the eyes of people who are not white because those eyes have been agaze at that hypocrisy ever since the founding of this country. Holy guacamole. So part of the whiplash you're saying that people are experiencing, the disorientedness, is that they are catching their first glimpse of an you know, built-in hypocrisy that you're saying has always been there. Always been there. And um, it, is, um, it is to their benefit that they're asking the question. Yeah. So I, I don't discount the sincerity at all. It's just very hard to hear the response, um, especially from people of color who have seen this forever, and now that uh, whiteness is becoming, well, let's, let's just uh, uh, demographically um, impossible to hold up, to maintain, um, both in political sphere and educational spheres, and uh, uh, not quite in economics yet, but, um, but as we're seeing more and more uh, people of color be empowered in these various uh, spheres, um, what's happening is they're reacting, and, and they don't react because most of the evangelicals don't react and go, well, it's because I believe in white supremacy. They react because their quote-unquote way of life is changing. They, they're, the values that they've built their faith on, much of which I say are hypocritical, are going away. They're being called out on them, and they don't know how to respond to that. It, it's sort of like if you give a little bit, the whole thing collapses, Right. Mm. And it's it's a house of cards. White supremacy is, but but that is definitely the undergirding stream right now uh, that's uh, propelling this thing forward. And of course, Trump and his you know people like Stephen Miller and other manipulators are are great at dis- disseminating bad information and propaganda, and to get them to believe that their way of life is what's being changed. But actually the very faith that they claim is what's on the line. And I believe, because um, uh, I am a follower of Jesus, I believe that they are being called out by the creator uh, to actually, you know, put up or shut up. And so don't call yourself a Christian. Don't call yourself an evangelical. If you can't um, lay down your own whiteness on the altar and take up the equality and uh, the um, 
the betterment of all your brothers and sisters? Wow. I'm actually really glad that we uh, talked about this. You know, when you and I take on these various topics, I I never really know where we're going to go with it. But it is interesting when somebody suggested that we take up this topic, uh, I knew that because you and I have just turned in the manuscript to our, uh, to our book and we are getting, uh, we're working with our editor now for copy edits. And so I knew that this is a, something that is presently you and I are working on and addressing is that history is providing evangelicals an opportunity to wake up to a false dream that, um, or an impression that they have been under and that there is a real opportunity here that this moment in time is providing between the demographic change and our political climate. There's actually an opportunity to wake up to the reality that they are being haunted by a terrible nightmare. Yeah. And I'm so excited about this book. I really am. I, 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 I'm excited because one, the format is a conversation between us, sort of like we've just been having right now. Um, and I think that's more exciting than just sort of reading a book from a, a sort of a, maybe a third person standpoint. This is our voices. Um, it's an introductory in some ways, but also I think there's some deeper stuff in there for, for, for people and some of the, um, answers that I think people are looking for in, and it's a short book. It's not a, a, a big, big read. It's, it's what? We've got introduction, four chapters, and a conclusion, something yeah. like that. So I so, uh, can't wait till um, it gets in the hands of people and we can start having that conversation and expanding it. And uh, I'm hoping to get in some trouble. You know, <laughs> I think we might get in a little bit of trouble with this book, so I'm excited about that. I, I agree with you. And actually, you know, if the climate wasn't, what it is, and by that I, I, just, I mean both the political climate and what's happening with our environment, then I might be more hesitant to say, like, ah, oh, you know, I don't want to be too much of a troublemaker. But when you look at the mess that we're in, this is the perfect time to cause some trouble and to say, is this who we wanted to be? Is this what we wanted to invest in? Is this the fruit that we wanted to bear? No. So let's talk about, like, what what is in the mix right now that's causing this? Yeah. And, and by the way, this is just step one. Yeah. You know, we talk about like 12 steps, you know, this would be like step number one, <laughs> um, admitting that there is yes. a problem, right? And that you can't <laughs> solve it yourself. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and there's a whole lot more to go after that, but, but you can't go on until you first admit the problem. Well, listeners, thank you for tuning in. We would love your thoughts and insights. If you have a different perspective, if you want to point us to any resources, this is going to obviously be an ongoing conversation, especially in uh, 2020, as uh, it is an election cycle. And this is a live conversation. People are trying to sort this stuff out. And it is confusing and overwhelming and discouraging and gut-wrenching and so we want to have an ongoing conversation that uh, we'll throw these out we host live conversations online we have a book discussion coming up we want to be engaged uh, so that we are part of the solution and not contributing to the problem so we want to thank the patreon supporters for 
making this happen and supporting us. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we'll link to it in the show notes and you can find it on the website. We're so grateful for you uh, believing in this and helping us to host these conversations. Yeah, we're piecing it all together with your help. Thanks a lot. And uh, I say for now, peace out.